0: Hello and welcome to Cinema Journal presents Academia, Media, a brand new podcast that offers you an academic perspective on film, television, and other media formats. I'm one of your two hosts. My name is Christine Becker. I'm an associate professor in the Department of Film, Television, and Theater at the University of Notre Dame.
1: And I'm Michael Kackman at the University of Texas.
0: Hello, Michael. Welcome to Acad Media. Howdy. We are uh, planning to come to you all once a month. We're going to offer you 30 to 40 minutes of interviews with media studies academics, uh, topic uh, segments about everything from media news to pedagogy to professional development. And essentially, we intend to take you behind the scenes of media studies academia, the life, the research, the knowledge, the crippling insecurities and stresses, uh, but also the joys of this life we lead, which we do enjoy this life, don't we, Michael?
1: Oh, absolutely.
0: Um, And so we're going to take you all kinds of places, we hope, in uh, this monthly podcast. Um, Before we proceed, we should tell you a little origin story, uh, because the name of our podcast is Cinema Journal Presents Aka Media, and there's kind of a story behind every single component of that uh, title. Um, The idea for the podcast came from a Twitter discussion that took place last year, right at this time. There were a few people on Twitter saying they wish there was a Media Studies podcast, something more expansive, perhaps, than uh, Toby Miller's Cultural Studies podcast podcast. So I observed this Twitter conversation and, you know, grew very intrigued at this idea um, and then created a Google Doc to drum up ideas. Maybe 10 people were chiming in then. And they had 10 different ideas uh, for formats.
1: Presumably, that list of ideas did not include the the labor or the contributions of any of those 10 people, <laughs> did it?
0: Well, uh, well, with one exception, uh, and I'll name that session in a second. But uh, one thing that sort of one of my personal ideologies is if I want something to exist, I decide I'll be the person to go ahead and create it. So there are lots of great ideas. And as I said, sort of 10 different ideas for 10 different podcasts, but I decided to take charge then and make it the podcast that I decided it was going to be. Um, So zooming ahead a bit, then uh, a professor named Will Brooker invited me to become the new online editor for Cinema Journal. And Cinema Journal is, of course, the premier peer-reviewed journal of our discipline and it's the official publication of the Society for Cinema and Media Studies, or SCMS for short. So uh, Will had just taken, or he's just now taking over as the head editor of Cinema Journal, and he asked me to develop online initiatives tied to the journal. Um, And we're going to hear a lot more about that later in the podcast, because we've got an interview with Will. But that basically gave us the official backing to start this podcast. Um, So that's where it got from a bunch of people having ideas to me taking over to it becoming Cinema Journal Presents. Um, That also gave us pressure, actually, though, to make this something legitimate. Uh, We have to live up to the great reputation of Cinema Journal. Um, So that's partly where Michael comes in. Michael's going to help us make this a legitimate operation. I'm the one you brought in for legitimacy. <laughs> yes. Well, well the uh, one other person I said I was going to mention who did help us out at that initial stage with, with ideas, I want to mention because you won't hear his voice this episode, uh, but that's Bill Kirkpatrick. He's an assistant professor at Denison University, and he was right there at the start helping us with ideas. Um, he's going to be helping us with producing, with uh, web design. So um, we are really grateful to Bill. We for, would not be um, able to
1: do this without him.
0: Yeah, exactly. For, uh, you know, again, sort of putting into action a lot of great ideas. Um, And then Michael, you want to mention one of our other helpers? Yes,
1: we also get an amazing amount of support from Todd Thompson, who is a musician and producer here in Austin, who is a a UT master's program alum. And he is doing uh, some really amazing behind the scenes work, including designing our theme music and Mm -hmm. audio transitions. So thank you, Todd.
0: Yeah, we have like podcast music. And so that was the first thing I think that made me think this is really going to be an actual podcast when he proposed some of these themes. And I'm like, oh my God, that sounds like podcast music. So it became real. Um, We should also mention in terms of the sound design, one additional uh, entity that's made this possible. Because again, we wanted this to be something high quality. We wanted to have equipment so that it wouldn't sound like it was recorded underwater. And for that, we are deeply grateful to an institution at the University of Notre Dame uh, the Institute for Scholarship in the Liberal Arts, or ISLA. Um, they generously bestowed upon us an equipment grant, so we were able to buy digital recorders and microphones. Um, so, ISLA, you're the best. We wouldn't be here without you. Thank you. Now, uh, what will this podcast be? We're still not sure. Uh, we're kind of tinkering with it, and it will be a work in progress as we go, so we invite suggestions from listeners. Um, but just sort of an, is an indication of how we're you know, we've taken a while to fish through what we want this to be. Um, it took us forever to come up with the Acamedian name. I'm talking months. Months. <sighs> months. Months. Um,
1: and um all of us have polled lots of friends, colleagues, mentors, psychotherapists, trying to figure out what we are going to name this thing. And our results were, well, were you whelmed?
0: Um, I was I, I was actually impressed at the energy with which people came to this task. I got lists of like, you know, on Twitter especially, I was kind of flooded with names. Um, but it's really hard to come up with a name that, that you think kind of pinpoints what you're trying to do. So uh, And then we went to kind of the heart of uh, academics. And you want to tell us about what you did at Flow?
1: We still hadn't settled on the perfect name. And we'd cast about and gotten quite a few recommendations. And, and I agree, the enthusiasm was very high. The, the hit rate didn't quite match the enthusiasm, but that's, <laughs> you know, that's okay. And so I took one of our recorders to the Flow Conference and polled people. I'd, I have to say that I think I got the best responses at the uh, open bar reception.
0: Mm-hmm. That's usually a place where you can generate some good ideas, I think. Here are a
1: few. If you were to have a radio show about field oh, about media studies but not just like a stupid something interesting what would you call it has, has anyone said like tv talk or like talking tv or something like that we've had some variations on that see, see, I, I like simplicity i like the media studies podcast you know it's, it's just, people you know, be able to find it clarity there's a hundred bucks in it for you if you come up with the right with, title
2: with the with the money the right title well you know yeah. yeah
1: the one the winning title
2: Hmm. I want to come, character. I mean, the only, I want to call it something really clever. So that's what I I'm know, like, right? like. what do I say? Um, as long as it doesn't consist of, like, a bunch of snots talking about which movies are the greatest and which are. I don't, oh, that's
1: a good title. How about <laughs> do we call it that? Yes. snots.
2: Snot, yeah. Talk? How about.
3: Oh, TV. That's so interesting. <laughs> I
4: actually
5: kind of like that.
3: What about. Oh, yeah. the air.
5: <laughs> okay. How Just
2: about that dialogue? How about that P to to B What's your last name? I don't podcast. I don't what? I don't know.
3: This is not your blog. Or, I
2: mean, given digital, it's much
0: more. It's much more code based, so it could be a, a play on wave and particle. This media is both a is wave and
5: particle. Yeah, I mean, what is radio anymore? You're not going well, to actually, actually put light. this on it's the light. radio. It's It is both a wave a and a particle.
1: Yeah. Right. I mean, that's the. Oh, I like that. Is you might shit. get a bottle of whiskey out of this.
2: Yes. Okay. A title for a cinema journal podcast about media
0: studies podcast. I'm going
2: to get I
1: got nothing. So, there you have it.
0: Yeah, there and that pretty much was our attitude at a certain point as well. Um, and then
1: ultimately, the perfect title emerged yeah, it, and it well, well, came from
0: you. It one fateful day I was surfing, you know, looking up various academic stuff and I came across a discussion of uh, the term ACA fan and I thought, hey, ACA, we could do something with ACA and then it occurred to me, you know, ACA media is just a couple letters different than AC, uh, what is it, <laughs> than, than academia.
1: It's actually just two letters. Just
0: it is just two transposed. letters. In fact, on, uh, on Twitter, Jason Mattel said, it could easily be a typo, which I find kind of quite charming that our title could be just I a typo. I do like that. Yeah. Um, although we put a dash in there and that is because of URLs, someone had ACA media.org. So we had to throw a dash in there, ACA-media.org. So that means it's totally not a typo clearly because we have the dash in there right. so that saves us it's Akadash media <laughs> right which makes it like makes it sound dashing it makes it's it very sound quick. we're we're on the move and right so, Chris,
1: what else do we have that we're going to cover in this episode?
0: Well, we, um, first of all, in general, each episode is going to feature three primary segments. There's going to be one entitled Cinema Journal Presents, which will present an interview with the author of a Cinema Journal article. Um, we've got ex- a slight exception to that with the first episode, um, and that's because the we're going to feature an interview with Will Brooker, who is the new editor of Cinema Journal. So we're going to get an idea of what his goals are as the incoming editor, as well as the motivation behind his his desire to develop these uh, online initiatives that are responsible for, for instance, Cinema Journal Presents AchaMedia. So that's going uh, to be one segment in every episode. Um, then we're going to have two more segments uh, in each episode rotating across various topics. And we'll have general titles like the Acadia perspective, the Acadia life, Acadia on location. Uh, and again, in this two, uh, this episode, we've got two uh, versions of the AchaMedia on Location. You have one of those.
1: I do. I went and visited the Flow Conference in Austin, Texas in November of 2012.
0: And then we'll finish with one last AchaMedia on Location feature that will take us to uh, Indiana University, where a tribute to the late Alexander Doty took place. So without further media blab, which was actually one of the proposed names at one point. I think
1: you know, you know one that I actually really liked. I really liked the this is not a podcast.
0: <laughs> and our one. logo
1: could have been like a little hat, you know, like pretending mm-hmm. podcast mm-hmm. would have been very very, you know. That clever. was
0: clever and that had potential. But no. No. Not not quite as good search engine uh, you know, optimization as Acme perhaps. Not. So All right, so uh, without further ado, then we bring you the first Cinema Journal Presents segment of Cinema Journal Presents Media. Will Brooker is a significant reason why this podcast even exists. Brooker is the head of the film and television department at Kingston University in southwest London, and he's published numerous monographs, uh, most famously a pair of books on the Batman franchise, including Hunting the Dark Knight, which was published to coincide with the release of Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight Rises earlier this year. Brooker has now stepped into his next venture as he begins a five-year tenure as the editor of Cinema Journal, the premier peer-reviewed publication of our discipline. In planning for what the next stage of Cinema Journal might look like, Brooker had an idea to usher the 45-year-old publication into the multi-platform convergence era by fostering web resources tied to it. He then invited me to help with that goal in the newly formed position of online editor of Cinema Journal, and that turned this podcast idea I had from a lark into a real possibility. So without Cinema Journal backing, without Will Brooker's backing, you wouldn't be listening to me right now. So I thought it would be fitting for the first episode of Media to feature Will uh, discussing his upcoming episodes efforts with Cinema Journal, what goals he has for the journal, including these new online initiatives, and how he balances such efforts with his own prolific research agenda. Hello, Will. Welcome to ACA Media.
6: Hello, Chris. Thank you very much.
0: So you've been at Kingston since 2005, and what uh, duties and titles have you held there?
6: Um, since 2005, I was employed as um, field leader, which is a term which sounds like a kind of uh, a battle-top strategy game, but it's a kind of head of department Um it's, I was employed as a senior lecturer and a field leader, so I was, I was running a team of um, film studies department. Uh, after that I've just been promoted to things like um, principal lecturer, head of film and television, and then reader, and my current title is director of research in film and television. So I've just been moving up the ranks of the, the British system over the last seven years.
0: And your most important title and and move up the ranks as far as this podcast is concerned is uh, your new title of editor for Cinema Journal, and that's a position you'll hold starting January 1st. Uh, With that, you're going to become the first British editor of Cinema Journal. So do you see any significance in that? Is that sort of part of uh, SCMS wanting to expand more internationally?
6: Um, If anything, I would think maybe the Britishness would count against me because I'm actually geographically removed from most people in SCMS. SCMS remains mostly US-centred organisation, most of the SCMS exec are based in the United States, the conference is based there, the board meetings are based there, so I mean I think it's very, I'm obviously I'm very happy that I was appointed and I think it's a good thing for the journal and for SCMS because it's a movement towards opening up SCMS and the journal more broadly towards Britain and Europe and the rest of the world. It's going to remain US-centric I think but I think it's a nice movement towards more openness.
0: Clearly, then, you see opening up dialogue, opening up connections as important. Is that going to be part of your editorial goals for Cinema Journal?
6: I would say that dialogue is really how I approach academia in general, uh, including the journal. I don't really see the journal as, you know, I, I see the journal as part of what I'm doing as a scholar, really. Uh, and the way I approach popular culture and scholarship and to an extent, I think, life and the world is, is about connections and dialogue and matrices and intersections and how things connect up and how things relate and things being in a kind of dynamic and a spectrum and in conversation with each other. So um, I think it would be unlikely that the journal wouldn't be affected by my view of how things work, but yeah, certainly, explicitly, I do want the journal to enter into dialogue more. There are various ways we're going to do that, partly through the online editor role.
0: Yeah, you, um, you've added my new position. I'm the online editor for Cinema Journal, and we're hoping to develop these new online initiatives. So how do you see those online initiatives then tied to those goals of, of dialogue, expansion, and so forth?
6: The way I see that is it's is we're in an interesting situation here, because Cinema Journal is a, a slow-moving, prestigious, literally a shiny black vehicle. Uh, and, and it is slow, and it's high status, and it carries privilege. And it should remain higher value because we wouldn't be doing anyone any favours if we kind of lowered the currency of what it means to be published in cinema journal because that actually helps people to get jobs and to get tenure and so on, to get promotion. So, though I want to make the journal more accessible, um, I want to do that without devaluing the journal at all. So the way of doing that, I think, is really, again, it's it's through my approach to popular culture which is um, similar to, to Jonathan Gray's idea about paratext, really. You have the text and then you have the surrounding um, satellites or the the system of circulating texts. He borrows it from uh, Gerard Genette in his um, work on on literature. But the idea is that cinema journal will be the kind of the key text, the core text. It'll remain the core text, and it's slow moving, like the sun or whatever. And around it, we have all these faster moving satellites which engage with each other, and they are easier for other people to engage with, and they're easier for other people to reach than getting right through to the main the main hub.
0: And in fact at our in our meetings about possibilities for the online material, you remarked upon this, you know, sort of a uh You know, a problem we all live with with academic publishing is it's very slow. You know, we submit articles; it takes a very long time. You know, readers need to take a long time to to go through that material, provide feedback, and then simply the mechanics of publishing take a long time. One of the values of the online world is I can, you know, I have an idea, I post it, and you know, the next day everybody's reading it. So um, you had this sort of way of thinking about the online materials, a way of turning the downside of the um, slowness of publishing into sort of an advantage online, Um, and I think that's really exciting. For instance, we're going to have cinema journal authors write online posts in which they reflect back on their work and where it's gone. So that, you know, it might might have been maybe two and a half years since they finished off that article and a lot might have changed. And so they'll get time to sort of then follow up on what they wrote. And I think that's a really promising idea.
6: Yeah, we came up with that idea together. I think we, um, we wanted to make a bug into a feature. Effectively, it takes an awful long time between Uh, submission to Cinema Journal and and possible publication. and Inevitably, the research that went into that article happened even before you submitted it. So it's a very long process, and it kind of seems a bit strange sometimes when we're writing about fast-moving popular culture, that, you know, a TV season could have completely ended, a show could be off the air by the time the thing comes out. So we're going to take advantage of our online dialogue sphere, or whatever we want to call it, to enable people to contribute... Something like afterthoughts or postscripts, like, if I was rewriting this now, what would I add? And of course, because it's online, other people can come along and post comments and the author can reply. So, again, the, the journal remains this kind of quite fixed thing, but we can build a way of talking about the articles uh, into the online network surrounding it.
0: Mm-hmm. One other uh, responsibility you have as editor is to choose your Masthead team who you're going to work with and then the editorial board who's going to be uh, kind of reading through these articles. So I'm curious about your thoughts of, on that, about how you went about choosing the Masthead team and the editorial board, what guiding goals you had there. Partly you
6: choose people that you kind of know, uh, you know, you, you partly use your instincts. You know, people who are sympathetic, people who come um, recommended by other people, people you've worked with, um, just people that you know you can get along with because you're going to have to work with them very closely and people that you know you can trust and that you can you can talk to easily. That kind of, you know, just having that sort of engagement and connection, I think, is, is really, really valuable. Um, I also, I, I kind of wanted to exercise a gender bias in terms of appointing as many women as I could to the editorial board and to the masthead team, um, simply because I think there has historically been a an imbalance the other way, and I want to take advantage of this position where I have a little bit of a power, really, a kind of platform, as the editor of this uh, major journal, and I, I feel it's a useful thing to try and re- redress imbalances where you can. I believe about a third of the um, previous editorial board was women, and we've tried to make that around 50%, we've tried to get up to 50%, obviously not appointing people who aren't excellent and aren't up to the task, but it was one of the factors we, we bore in mind, that there aren't enough women in senior positions.
0: Now, you've been on the other end of publishing quite a bit yourself. You're uh, most known for your work on Batman, which has earned you the awesome nickname of Dr. Batman, but you've also published monographs on Star Wars, on Alice in Wonderland. You've done work on video games, other media forms. A lot of academics self-identify by medium. We say, I'm a TV scholar, I'm a film scholar, I'm a game scholar, but you're all that and more. So is that because you're a voracious consumer of all those media? Are you interested in intertextuality? Where do you think that comes from?
6: It could be both of those things. I used to have Before I used to use Twitter a lot and took it more seriously, I, my, my descriptor on there was just Pop-Tart because it's like, you know, I just feel like open to popular culture. Um, if I was speaking about an interview or something rather than on Twitter, I would say, you know, I'm interested in popular narratives and audiences, um, the relationship between historical context, um, popular stories, the stories we tell, the people who receive them and the people who, who tell them. So, again, it's like a, a network or a matrix it's the um, relationship between stories and the tellers and the listeners and the time in which they're told, basically. And I guess, to a great extent, I'm not—I don't really discriminate about what medium they are told through uh, or what kind of platform. And I think that's partly because stories are told over so many different platforms, particularly at the moment. But I also think, in the past, you know, um, the, you know, the westerns of the early. Twentieth century were also in comics and magazines, and they were based on um, historical journalism. And they were they overspilled into radio and so on. So I think popular stories have been cross-platform for a long time. Actually, it's not just a recent phenomenon.
0: You know, I think that's one great value academia can offer to the study of popular culture and beyond academia and, you know, the popular press and, and particular uh, media historians. There's always a sense, anything new that comes out, there's a sense like, oh, we've never seen anything like this before. And media historians have, you know, a long perspective to look back and say, well, why are, you know, there's sort of parallels with this. Here's what we can learn by comparing to how this happened in the past. And I think that's one great value of both having historical scope and having a, a scope beyond just one media is you can really make sense of a lot of things are what, what are happening in a more comprehensive way.
6: Yeah, I do think you have to see how things work in connection with each other, and that also applies to how I see things politically. If I can say something else about the editorial board, in fact, it wasn't just about gender. I also went around all the um, SCMS caucuses. There's the caucus, the um, the African and African-American caucus, caucus for class, the queer caucus, the women's caucus, the Latino-Latina caucus, and ask them um, for recommendations of people they would like to see representing on the board. Because, I mean, there's a lot of areas I don't know an awful lot about. You know, I say I spread myself thinly across various media and stories, but there's there's a lot of different areas of um, cinema and um, media studies that I don't know anything about. So I asked the groups that I thought did know more about it to make sure that we do have experts in those areas which I think have probably been historically underrepresented and marginalised so we can make sure when we do get an excellent essay about African cinema um, we have someone to recognise it and, and that we publish it and we don't have people on the board who you know only know about white European cinema or something. So where I don't know something, and there's an awful lot of areas where I don't know something I have tried to ask people who I think do know.
0: So in terms of those notions of of dialogue, you clearly put into practice what you believe because you appear in the media a lot yourself. You do interviews, you write in popular press outlets. So what do you think you gain by sharing your work beyond the confines of academia?
6: Twitter followers, fan fan mail from people, I don't know. Uh, Well, I do like talking to people. You know, I, I do very much like getting emails from people who are Batman fans or something, they're not academics, but um, they say, you know, I read your book on Batman and I actually understood it. That's very pleasing to me because that book is full of, like, Bakhtin, Bart, Kristeva and Derrida. So the fact that someone who doesn't understand, what well, he wasn't formally trained in theory, enjoyed it, is is, is very rewarding to me. Um, so, I mean, that's symptomatic of something else, I believe, that I think um, if we're going to use theory, we should be able to demonstrate to people who aren't formally trained and who aren't, like, one of us who haven't grown up through the academy... Uh, why? Why is it useful? Why are these two tools, tools useful? What can they tell us about the stories that we enjoy, the stories that we use to structure our experience in our lives? I mean, to me, there's no point me using Derrida if someone who is a Batman fan can't understand um, why is this useful. What does this tell me about the relationship between Batman and the Joker? Like, I'm not just using it to try and score points academically. I'm actually trying to use it to unpack the 73 years of relationship between the protagonist and the antagonist in a popular narrative. So if, if people get that, and they have seemed to get it, that to me is a real success.
0: You know, that's also, you mentioned Twitter. That's one of the great joys of Twitter for me is that I can have conversations with other scholars and everyone from, you know, senior tenured professors to, to beginning graduate students, and, and then journalists and TV fans and just there's a huge range of people and it's really gratifying to be able to talk to people about your work and then hear from them, their thoughts on it. It's, you know, that again, that notion of dialogue. Twitter is, is really fun for that, I think.
6: That's partly what we want to do with Cinema Journal more. In this, I mean, well, Twitter sphere is also a word, isn't it? We'll have to make a word for it, you know, the CJ sphere <laughs> or something. So, again, you've got the journal, but all around it is these different ways of, of talking to the journal. Um, so the in-focus sections, which have been running for a long time now, and are one of my favourite parts of the journal, are going to be supplemented by um, an in-media res forum where the people who contributed to the in-focus then curate a clip and encourage dialogue about it. And we've got various ways that we're thinking of um, using our online partners. Uh, conference reports are going to be published online on Antenna and Scope, depending on whether they're US or UK conferences. So, in a way, one thing is it's going to be a lot easier to publish something under the Cinema Journal brand because it's a lot easier to publish something on Antenna and Scope a conference report than it is to submit something or wait two and a half years to get it published in the in the text journal we're hoping to do interviews with the authors of the articles on transformative works and cultures and we're also very excited about the idea of having peer-reviewed by the cinema journal editorial board um, visual essays, video essays which we're currently talking to transformative works and cultures about. So there's various ways we're trying to innovate um, the dialogue around the journal.
0: Mm-hmm. And yeah, all these initiatives sound really um, amazing. Um, one last question that um, I'd like to ask you, because you are a very prolific scholar yourself, uh, and you're kind of an inspiration as an academic as far as publishing. You teach, of course, at Kingston. Now you're taking on this journal editorship. So how do you think you're able to balance all these demands? How do you get all that done?
6: I think it's, a, well, one of the one of the reasons is that I actually, I'm, I'm writing about things that I actually enjoy and am interested in. And I think um, it's useful if you actually feel passionate about the things you're writing about academically, then it doesn't feel so much like work. A lot of the stuff I do, you know, I, there's of course we have this other category, you know, the Aka fan. I'm not sure how I feel about identifying as an Acker fan, but a lot of the things I do are kind, of, uh, are kind of based on a fandom, or they're related to a fandom, they're related to an enthusiasm that I have for the thing I'm writing about. So it doesn't really feel like I better stop doing the fun stuff now and get on with the writing. I mean, obviously, sometimes the writing is a real chore, and you have to force yourself to do it. But, you know, you can't really complain if you're reading a Batman comic and taking notes on it, and that's, that's your work, that's your job. So um, I, I guess my line is that, um, you know, if you find a, a job that you really enjoy doing, then you're not going to do a day's work.
0: And I sense that you have that same enthusiasm going forth with Cinema Journal. I just sort of sense in your voice sort of real excitement about what the possibilities are for Cinema Journal. Um, so any final thoughts about that, things you would want to kind of tell people that they can look forward to in the Will Brooker era of Cinema Journal?
6: Well, firstly, I wouldn't like to call it the Will Brooker era. It's, it's the Chris, it's the Chris <laughs> Becker era as much as anything else. It belongs, right. to, the, it belongs to the masthead team. Including our brilliant um, assistant editors who have really come through when we were putting together the first issue.
0: Yeah, when, would you like to name them?
6: Yes, uh, Christine Atchison and, and Philip Bevin have, uh, have proved real, real troopers working over the holiday season, They're trying to reformat articles to uh, according to the Chicago Manual of Style. It's been a huge pleasure. I mean, working over Christmas with with um, Anna Frola. My associate editor and the assistant editors, has been um, it's been a lot of work, but I've just been blown away by by their commitment and their skill. So firstly, I mean, alright, my name is, I get my name as the editor, but it's a, it's a team thing, it's very much a team thing. There is absolutely no way one person could put together this journal, I've realised that, there is no way. I guess the, the, the main message I would like to put across to people around my era of cinema journal, we'll see if it comes true is that there's going to be more ways of engaging with it, more ways of taking part in it, more ways of getting involved, more ways of talking to it, because the journal will still be what it's always been at the center, but there'll just be a more exciting and dynamic surround of other texts around it.
0: Great. Well, I really look forward to seeing how this plays out. I'm very excited to be uh, you know, able to help it uh, happen. And I also appreciate you taking the time to share all these uh, ideas and thoughts with us.
6: Well, that's a great pleasure. Thank you very much.
0: All right, thank you, Will. music playing there is from the Dark Knight Rises soundtrack. It's one of Will Brooker's favorite bits from it, in fact. Uh, and the title is Aggressive Expansion. And uh, while Brooker's plans for expanding Cinema Journal don't sound quite as fascist as that indicates, um, I think I might just put that on anytime I sit down to do some online editor work for Cinema Journal. I think I, like very inspirational. Aggressive Expansion. Yes, that's what we're doing here. Uh, So now we're going to move on to our second segment. Uh, When we can, we'll take you on location to conferences and other academic events, both to give you an idea of what took place there and also to try to unlock why we do things like attend conferences and academic events. So Michael produced the following segment about the Flow Conference, offering us an interview with two of the grad student organizers, some reaction from one of the participants, and a taste of the special screening at the conference, which included a sneak peek of the Fox pilot for the following, as well as two film shorts a documentary on cults, and the local staple, The Star of Destiny, which is touted as an epic journey through the history of Texas, complete with 4D effects.
1: I'm speaking with Katie Lausch and Colleen Montgomery, two of the organizers of the 2012 Flow Conference. Welcome. Thank Thank you. you. One of the things I was hoping we could talk about is, first off, um can you explain the premise of the conference and the way that it's organized uh, and the way that it the way that you kind of understand its relationship to flow the journal?
2: Well, first of all, uh, in terms of structure, it's quite different from a traditional conference, specifically because there are no plenary sessions, um, no invited speakers um, doing highlighted talks. And there are no conventional panels either. So what happens instead is you have round tables. Um, with between five and eight participants, and they all provide an answer to an open-ended discussion question. Um, And they read each other's responses in advance of the panel to get the discussion started. And how that relates back to the Flow Journal is that all of those organizing questions are contributed um, by columnists for the Flow Journal. Plus, flow
7: is meant to um, encourage discussion. That's why the posts are so short, and it's really meant to get comments going, start conversations. And then with flow, it's really about audience participation as much as it is the roundtable participants. So there's really a conversation in the whole room and not just among the roundtable people. So the conference committee is comprised of grad students. It's a grad student-run conference. There were seven coordinators. We had three programmers. We had one person. Um, well, we had three programmers, one of which was Mike O'Brien alongside us. We also had Jesse Trimble, who was in charge of like securing the venue and events coordinating. We had Morgan O'Brien, who was in charge of the budget and all the financial stuff. And then we had Mike Rennett, who was in charge of publicity. And then we had two um, faculty advisors, which were Mary Kearney and Mary Beltran, and they were just kind of there to help guide the process and provide some knowledge from what happened last time and things like that.
1: Favorite panel? Favourite roundtable?
2: Well, I mean, it's difficult. I really liked the conversation in the teaching TV panel, um, and I thought that pedagogy uh, was a really major concern uh, running through the entire conference, and it was interesting to see um, a wide array of perspectives from people teaching in really different contexts at Research One, interest, Research One institutions, at community colleges, um, at small liberal arts schools. So I found that highly instructive.
7: My favorite was probably the panel, that, or the roundtable. Excuse me. That was about the black sitcom and the future of the black sitcom. Uh, we had really good roundtable participants in the conversation, and that one was really good. Just talking about the industry and where it's headed.
1: On a scale of one to ten, mm-hmm. how excellent was the screening at the uh, uh, Bullock State Museum?
2: Twelve. <laughs> I think what worked so well is that. On their own, all of the screenings were really interesting, but there was also such a through line um, with cults, the Houston cults short that we showed, uh, with the kind of cultish nature of the uh, Texas uh, 4D screening, which really sort of tries to indoctrinate you as a good... A good Texan.
1: We're all Texans now.
2: Mm-hmm. And the following, which specifically uh, had to do with an Edgar Allan Poe serial killer cult. <laughs> so they worked quite nicely together. They did. Oh, and we should mention that the screening was coordinated by Morgan O'Brien,
7: too.
1: We spoke briefly to Jason Mattel about his conference experience.
5: Flow is a unique conference for people in media studies because it it upends the traditional paper model. And... Instead of having people read things, we actually read things in advance to be able to see what people have to say, and then the entire time is dedicated toward conversation. And I think that it was one of the first conferences to really change those dynamics, and now there's a whole movement of unconferences and more workshop-driven conferences, and I think that that flow is very much part of that and has evolved to sort of serve that place within media studies.
1: Jason, you were a participant on the Teaching Roundtable. And it seemed to be especially engaging. Why do you think that is?
5: I think one of the main reasons is because so many people spend the majority of their academic time teaching. But when you go to conferences, you almost never talk about teaching. You almost never talk about the practical things that you're doing, but instead are focused on questions of research, which is very important. But there's really a place to talk about the practical. And, you know, SCMS has hosted teaching workshops for a number of years, um, and those always are very um, positive and exciting conversations. So I think having something specifically within the flow format where conversation is uh, foregrounded around teaching, which is obviously a conversational and an interactive practice itself, really, uh, they came together quite well.
1: The conference screenings really were an inspired bit of madness. Dating back to the first conference in 2006, Flow has featured a number of sneak premieres of new shows. Previous conferences included premieres of The Short-Lived Traveler and Lone Star, as well as some fantastic rarities from the Peabody Archives and 5.15 an Hour, the unaired pilot that Rick Linkletter created for HBO. And now that Flow's screenings are conducted in the 4D screening room of the Texas State History Museum, Every year, they include the Star of Destiny short film. A multimedia extravaganza, complete with an immersive hurricane and vicious rattlesnakes, Star of Destiny is a highlight of every Texas grade schooler's pilgrimage to Austin. Narrated by a 10-foot-tall Sam Houston, you'll hear a small taste of it at the end of this segment. It's too early to say whether the following, Fox's new serial killer cult drama, will be a hit or whether it will follow in the footsteps of some of the less-than-successful pilots Flo has aired in the past. Nonetheless, the show occupies at least 2 subgenres that are worth further study, perhaps by an enterprising SCMS member casting about for a paper topic. The first I refer to, of course, is the tendency toward overcooked representations of college professors as alternately delusional, imperious, daft, and diabolical. There are plenty of those to choose from. The second, which is even more fun, is an even smaller subgenre, that of the murderous professor, so consumed by the literary world he studies that he seeks to replicate it in real life. I'm not quite sure why it takes a forensic genius to identify traces of Poe's most obvious and widely read short stories in these crimes, but, well, that's TV.
4: Joe Carroll was obsessed with the romantic period. His lectures consisted of Thoreau, Emerson, in particular his hero, Edgar Allan Poe. And like Poe, he believed in the insanity of art that it had to be felt. He didn't just eviscerate 14 female students. He was making art. He cut out his victim's eyes as a nod to his favorite works of Poe, The Telltale Heart and The Black Cat. Sipho believes the eyes are our identity windows to our soul. Classifying him as a picaurus would be too simplistic.
1: For more information about past and future flow conferences, including roundtable questions and position papers, visit them at flowtv.org.
7: the eagle has landed. Who would have thought the first word from the moon would be Houston?
0: <laughs> we'll finish out this episode with another AcaMedia on Location segment, though it's one we deeply wish we never had to do. On August 5th, 2012, academics lost a distinguished colleague when Professor Alexander Doty died. Doty received his PhD from the University of Illinois in 1984, and he quickly became one of the most influential voices in media studies with his film theory work. His 1993 book, Making Things Perfectly Queer, was a landmark publication for queer studies. And his 2000 monograph, Flaming Classics, Queering the Film Canon, is just an outright great read. Alex had been at Indiana University since 2008, and so a group of his friends and colleagues gathered there in mid-October to host a tribute to his life and work. Michael and I were unable to attend, uh, but in a circumstance we hope to repeat often here at Aka Media, we found a proxy, uh, someone to attend in our stead and record a piece about the event. That person was Alexa Plange, who is based in Indianapolis and who graciously answered my call for help on Twitter. The two-day event featured a plenary presentation about Doty's work with speakers like Corey Kreekmer and Constance Penley, a memorial service that celebrated Doty's life, and screenings of a few of Doty's favorite films. So Alexa filed this segment about it for us.
3: I'm Alexa Plange, and today I am recording live from an Indiana University Bloomington event entitled A Celebration of the Life and Works of Alexander M. Doty. Before passing away due to a tragic accident in August, Alexander Doty served as professor and chair of the Department of Communication and Culture at IU. A pioneer in the field of queer media studies, Doty was passionate about gay, bisexual, transgender, and feminist film theory, teaching and writing several books on the important subjects. Given that one of his many contributions to film scholarship involved conducting interviews with film directors for IU Cinema's own podcast, it is only fitting that we honor Alexander Doty by capturing his legacy by way of one of his favorite communicative mediums. Throughout the evening, co-workers, friends, and students articulated the ways in which Doty's work and friendship impacted their lives and perspectives on media. Constance Penley, professor and chair of film studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara, shared her thoughts about Doty, emphasizing the ways in which his work enriched her understanding of the relationships between gender, sexuality, and media studies. As an example, she explained how Doty's work touched on and furthered insights brought forth by Freud, which she was then able to apply more concretely to media in her own work and teaching. Alexander Doty is on the verge of being recognized as the single most important figure in gay media studies. His work is entirely original, unusually important, exceptionally well argued, and engagingly written. His most important insight is that queer positions, readers, readings, and discourses are not just confined to those who happen to be gay or lesbian, but are culturally available to everyone. Finally, Corey Kriegmer, associate professor of English from the University of Iowa, lauded Doty's knack for effectively weaving together the scholarly with the personal when interpreting media. While personal experience colored much of Doty's interpretations of media, he was also naturally inclusive, perceptively going out of his way to seek out the perspectives of others.
4: Any full or responsible representation of Alex must weave together his private and public selves since he so effectively insisted upon their blending himself. As his books and essays insisted, and the divide was misleading in the first place. Alex was, in addition to a queer activist, a deeply committed feminist. And he frequently despaired of versions of gay culture that did not form alliances with feminism or with lesbian culture. Although it has become virtually a historical relic among younger post-feminists, he took entirely to heart the 1970s women's movement mantra that the personal is political. All of these were developments that he understood would include risky self-exposure, possibly awkward self-critique, and even self-celebration that might be taken to be narcissism. He knew that his work, which could be accused of subjectivity, partisanship, a willful reading into innocent text, self-serving projection—all of those easy complaints—it had to be thorough, it had to be rigorous, it had to be persuasive in order to con- convince skeptics, while at the same time embracing rather than shunning the personal investment, a key term for him, investment, um, that is so often repressed in other interpretive work. But I will also continue to teach Alex's work for the same reasons I've already taught it for many years, because like Alex himself, his criticism is smart, it's funny, it's bold, it's moving, typically all at the same moment.
3: This well-orchestrated tribute to Alexander Doty put together by his friends and colleagues demonstrated the man's irreplaceable impact on media studies, particularly in the field of queer studies. The many anecdotes, both academic and social in nature, served as a reminder that good, well-meaning collaboration within a community benefits everyone. The following individuals' testaments about Doty exemplify this phenomenon. In their own words.
1: And Alex's work meant a lot to me because... During a period of my life where I was kind of unsure about
4: gayness,
1: where I fit in, uh,
4: the legitimacy of what I had to say, I, I read his book, Making Things Perfectly Queer. And in the introductory essay, he says something to the effect of queer readings
1: of popular culture are not wishful thinking, they're not extreme, they're not off the wall, they're legitimate. And
4: reading that made me realize I could have something to say as well. Um, and one of the things that I keep going back to about Alex's work is how much it inspired me to not be embarrassed to inflect my own sense of my own personal history and mm-hmm. writing and I think he celebrated that and he actually as people were just saying in the, in the um, presentation today that he he struggled with that you know openly in the, the materials that he wrote um, in his books and in his essays and um I know that I'm not the only one that was inspired by that because it was a lot, it was a risk for him to do it and it's a risk for a lot of people who are doing dissertations or it was when I did mine hmm. to even interject some kind of a personalized eye into the oh, whole right. struggle. Yeah. And, um, but I, he gave me the courage to do that or he made it. he made it not only seem like it was something good to do but something important to do. Hmm. So that meant a lot to me.
8: My second year deciding to teach the introduction to queer cinema course that I that I'd put on the books I decided to teach uh flaming the classics and my vivid memory of um uh, coming to that text for the second time I'd read it as a graduate student and was profoundly um shaken by it and thought it was just the the most prescient profound way of rethinking cinema and how to watch it and who's in the audience. and when I came to it and reread it uh, and thought about presenting it to undergraduates, I thought, Oh, I wonder if this is going to be too much the for best. them to wow. to, <laughs> to challenge their favorite, their their childhood favorites. And sure enough, um, I remember they read the essay on gentlemen prefer blondes, and I had a number of students who just rose up in in a, a huff and said this is too much um, this is just this is just it, read, reading too deeply into these texts and then one student stood up who turned out was uh, gay, one student stood up and he said strangely this really rings familiar to me and I'll never forget the impact both of that work professionally on me and personally on that mm-hmm. student and certainly it spoke to me personally to see Um, writing scholarship that could be so deeply challenging and compassionate at the same time um, and aware that it might need to coax uh, a reader to a position Um, and so that day that student really had everything he needed to convince his peers that, that there was no such thing as reading too deeply into a text. Clearly Alexander Doty may no
3: longer be with us, but his legacy lives on. Thanks to his work, colleagues, students, and friends, his passion and academic contributions will continue to reverberate for years to come.
4: In addition to my sense that the world probably will be spinning more slowly without Alex, I recently realized that I have vivid memories of certain films, even of the specific days on which, or the cinemas in which I saw them, that are so vivid precisely because I saw them without.
8: But I'm no physical culture fan, ain't there anyone here for love, sweet love, ain't there anyone, ain't there anyone, ain't there anyone, 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 anyone. Anyone?
0: So the music we closed with there was, of course, Jane Russell singing Ain't There Anyone Here for Love from Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, a film that inspired Doty to write an excellent chapter in his book, Flaming Classics, entitled Everyone's Here for Love, Bisexuality and Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. Um, Also screened at the tribute was the film Lever to Heaven, which has strong personal meaning for me. So I first saw it in grad school at the University of Wisconsin-Madison while on a first date. And it was a classic kind of pathetic graduate student first date, which involved homework. Um, we were assigned to watch Lever to Heaven for Leah Jacobs' melodrama class. And it's a film noir melodrama starring Jean Tierney. She plays, of course, a rather unstable woman in both film noir and melodrama style. If you're going to put them together, she's got to be Pretty unstable, and she falls in love with Cornell Wilde's character and grows pathologically possessive of him. Of course she does. Yes, and she basically kills off everyone she doesn't want to have to share him with.
1: Of course she does, uh,
0: including most tragically his physically disabled brother. Yeah, well. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, in the film's most infamous scene, Tierney takes this young uh, teenager out swimming in the middle of a lake, um, even though he's not fully physically capable uh, of it. Plus, for God's sake, he just had a big lunch. And he's what now swimming less wrong? than 30 minutes later. So uh, we're going to play the scene for you to set the stage and let you imagine this. Um, so picture Gene Tierney rowing out in a rowboat while a young teenage, uh, disabled boy who just had a big lunch goes swimming.
3: Are you all right? I'm a little winded. I had a kink in my side,
8: but it's gone now.
0: Better float for a while.
8: Yeah. I, I think
0: I'm getting tired. Take it easy. You don't want to give up when you've
3: come so far. Okay, I'll get my second wind in a minute.
8: Oh, oh, wa- water's cold, colder than I thought. Ah. Oh. I ate too much lunch. I got a
3: stomachache, Alan. It's it's a crab, Alan. It's, it's
8: a crab, Alan. Help me!
0: That's awful. It is. It's terrible and it's dreadful. Um. And yet, when I was watching that scene with my date, uh, Christopher Seving. We both, I have to admit, nearly fell off the couch laughing. You know, it's so bold. It's so insane. Um, and we knew at that moment we were watching the right film with the right person. Um, the Can rest agree. is, yeah, the rest is history. We got married. We're both college professors now, um, though we live eight hundred miles apart. That's a story for another podcast, though. Um the other part of the history, though, I got a B on that paper, which uh, was, I think probably the only B I ever got in graduate school. So Is it because you didn't love it enough? <laughs> I don't know. What Clearly I read it wrong. Maybe I wasn't supposed to be laughing at that scene. I'm not sure. I think um, you're probably just too cold a person to appreciate the <laughs>
1: subtle nuances of melodrama.
0: That could be very well it. That final story hopefully gives you an inkling of the perspective we're hoping to bring you with this podcast. We want to explore why media academics study, what we do, what we think about our objects of study, and how we can learn more about past and present media forms from academics. So that's the kind of stuff we hope to bring to you each month.
1: So Chris, what have we got coming up for future episodes?
0: We've got some exciting stuff coming up. So first of all, in the next episode, uh, you have an interview with Yvonne Tasker.
1: Oh yes, I do. That's right. <laughs> um, it's it was a a very interesting conversation I had with her about a recent article of hers in Cinema Journal about terror TV, about procedurals and national security dramas and. Discourses of terror and defending the homeland. It was really, really quite interesting.
0: And then I did a, a, a Acha Media on Location segment in Atlanta, Georgia, at Georgia State University, where they have a new media industries working group starting up. So I interviewed some attendees to figure out what they were hoping to start, and uh, also learned a lot about the Atlanta media production scene. So that's another segment we'll have next month.
1: And then shortly after that, we'll be attending the SCMS conference and bringing. Yeah some interviews and perspective.
0: Basically, we're hoping to interview everybody we can at the conference to give you content both about the conference and then to set up additional segments that we'll be able to do in later months. Excellent. All right. So we hope you'll join us each month as we do that. And we encourage you to share your thoughts and ideas about the podcast with us. Our email address is info at acca mediaorg You can follow us on Twitter at underscore media. And then you can get more information about the podcast, including links to everything we talked about in this, uh, from a link to Will Brooker's Batman books to, to more information about Alexander Doty's work on our website at acadashmedia.org.
1: And again, we want to thank our various contributors and sponsors.
0: Mm -hmm. Bill Kirkpatrick, Todd Thompson, Isla at the University of Notre Dame. SCMS. And also our uh, participants in the segments today, Will Brooker and Alexa Plange.
1: And dozens of, fortunately, anonymous contributors from Flow.
0: Plus co-organizers Katie Lausch and Colleen Montgomery and attendee Jason Mattel. I think we had some fun here, Michael, and I look forward to doing this again next month.
1: Excellent. ID too.
0: All right. (laughs) Bye-bye.